For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with some cold cucumbers, a reminder to subscribe to and support our work, and the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, which is where the cucumbers come in. Because last week, we noted a kerfuffle in Britain over the lack of such items as cucumbers, as well as tomatoes and lettuce, on store shelves in midwinter, which the usual suspects blamed on climate change. But supermarkets blame it on bad weather in Spain and North Africa that, though media accounts are characteristically vague, turns out, if you persist in clicking on all the links, to be not the dreaded heat, but unexpected cold of precisely the sort alarmist are certain doesn't happen anymore. Even The Guardian blurted out that, quote, at this time of year, Britain relies on Spain, Morocco, Tunisia, and Egypt for the bulk of salad imports. However, these crops have been affected by unusually cold weather last month, including intense night frosts, end quote. And it gets worse because, quote, Britain and other northern European countries, particularly the Netherlands, which is a big vegetable producer, have reduced how many crops they've planted over the winter after the Ukraine war sent bills soaring for the energy required to light and heat greenhouses and the cost of the fertilizer used on plants, end quote. Oh my. It's too cold in Africa, and in Europe, energy is too expensive to heat. Wait a minute. Greenhouses? As in the dreaded greenhouse effect? Places where nice stuff grows because it's warm and there's a lot of CO2? And it's the Ukraine war, not the government war on fossil fuels that's pushing up energy prices? Okay, let's see a deal with this one. Even in Britain, quote, a cold snap and frost before Christmas also damaged field crops, including cauliflower, cabbage, and carrots, end quote. Man, you know it's cold when even Braska wilts in what, we will doubtless again be told shortly, was secretly the hottest year ever. Talk about climate breakdown. Okay, says your news green, you can count on us. Quote, British supermarket shelves lay bare as farmers battle with labor shortages, soaring energy costs, inflation, supply chain issues, and climate change, end quote. In the newsletter, we also note that major Canadian fossil fuel companies continue to insist in big glossy ads that they're totally on board with their business being crushed as greedy plant-destroying evilness. Quote, we're making clear strides to net zero, says the Pathways Alliance, with graphics of fluffy white clouds and consultants speak a politician would envy about, quote, several pathways to get to net zero, end quote, and, quote, technology and innovation as part of a robust plan, end quote. But, as Charlie Chan warned, cozying up to your enemies doesn't make them your friends. In fact, everyone from Canadian politicians to international think tanks are lining up to sink their fangs into the oil companies as they rally around the fluffy white flag. Former Canadian Environment Minister and inveterate climate crusader Catherine McKenna just wrote in the Globe and Mail that, quote, Here in Canada, oil and gas companies, the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, need to step up and take meaningful climate action now. But instead, we have the Pathways Alliance, which represents major oil sands companies, taking out full-page newspaper advertisements claiming they're on their way to net zero despite all evidence to the contrary, end quote. And the current Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbeau, just told the Toronto Star that oil companies aren't cutting emissions, quote, and the reason it hasn't happened yet is because we haven't asked them to do it, end quote, which is dim-witted since, of course, they have been asking loudly and repeatedly for decades. And it's also disingenuous because he immediately added, quote, we haven't forced them to do it and we're going to force them to do it, end quote. So, the money Pathways spent on that ad was wasted on him too. And not just on him, others are also coiled to strike. 
The Globe and Mail recently reported that, quote, Canada's oil and gas sector is actively undermining efforts to bolster the country's climate policies, despite the industry's own net zero targets and messaging around its green credentials, claims a new analysis from a London-based climate think tank, end quote. And that analysis specifically named three of the six members of Pathways, plus the too frequently supine Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So here's a crazy thought. If you in the oil industry really believe fossil fuels are destroying the future, stop producing them in return for money. But if you don't, stop groveling and stand up for yourselves, including by sending us money. As usual, in the newsletter, we follow up with quick hits on a few ongoing stories, including the New York Times accidentally agreeing with us that electric vehicles don't do the job. Quote, electric vehicles are starting to look more like the rest of America's automobiles, big. As electrical vehicles bulk up, questions about safety and environmental impact grow, end quote. So, the EV will do everything your current car does, including getting banned. Also, the Financial Times warns, quote, U.S.-Europe trade tensions heat up over green subsidies. EU officials fear Biden's climate law will undermine the bloc's own efforts to drive green investment, end quote. So, Trade War 3 rages on as does the economic carnage from this supposed transition to a better economy. In Germany, there are warnings of as many as 900,000 industrial jobs being lost if the EU really does ban the manufacture of gasoline and diesel cars. The head of IG Metall calls it a red alert, or Alarmstufe Rot, the article is in German. In the newsletter, we sort of resist the urge to make fun of Greta Thunberg for joining a protest against a wind farm that might threaten reindeer and Aboriginal lifestyles. We do note how hard it is to satisfy this scold, but then we can see that yes, she's right, wind farms have an appallingly huge environmental footprint, which we add is only rendered worse by their ineffectiveness at meeting basic power needs, and we say that she deserves points for consistency for objecting to it. But where she's wrong is thinking there's some marvelous new energy source that meets all of our needs with no trade-offs, although if there were one, it would be nuclear. And, we're again struggling to be fair, Dunbury has shown some openness to nuclear energy. So, we're going to praise her for following the logic of her ideas where it leads, because if nothing else, that kind of habit helps clarify debate. And now, a word from the Stone Age. Because nature shares the astonishing discovery that, quote, like retirees who flocked to the Costa del Sol, ancient European hunter-gatherers sought out Spain's warmer climate during the peak of the last Ice Age, end quote. And why would they do such a thing? Right, because warmth is good for life, including human life, and cold is really wretched and kills the crops and drives away the animals, a point even cavemen understood, though we sophisticated moderns apparently now sit around dreaming of colder weather that will kill even carrots underground in Britain. So arguably, the whole caveman thing about developing bigger, better brains was a waste of time, given that we're now scratching our heads over why cheap new power sources are so expensive like the New York Times Climate Forward, pondering the coal challenge, which is that, quote, getting rid of coal is often seen as the easier part of the global transition to renewable energy. Developed countries have made great strides in abandoning coal, and investors have long avoided it. But for some developing countries, it hasn't been so easy, end quote. And they single out South Africa, where they're scrambling to keep the lights on. Quote, the International Energy Agency estimates that coal accounts for about 70% of South Africa's energy mix, end quote. And furthermore, quote, the country has been experiencing rolling blackouts since the late 2000s, and power failures have reached crisis proportions with daily outages over the past year, end quote. Now, South Africa's energy sector, like its entire political structure, seems to be a hideous mess. 
Apparently, the former head of ESCOB, which generates about 95% of South Africa's electricity, a man named Andre de Reuter, actually, quote, championed a shift to renewables. But he has recently left ESCOM amid a controversy over his allegations of corruption within the company. The South African police are investigating an apparent attempt to poison de Reuter with cyanide-laced coffee in December, end quote. Ugh. But... Whatever caused the energy mess in South Africa doesn't explain why coal is the cheapest alternative for trying to muddle through. Unless it's because wind and solar are expensive and unreliable there as they are everywhere, with or without cyanide in your coffee. Now, in this video, as in the newsletter, we also continue our fact check of Al Gore's rant in Davos by looking at his claim that carbon dioxide is, quote, melting the ice and raising the sea level, end quote. And yes, Melting ice is raising the sea level worldwide, though unevenly and hardly at a frightening pace. But what has CO2 to do with it? If you've seen our new video on the retreating glacier panic, you'll know that the really dramatic retreat of many prominent glaciers happened in the 18th, 19th, and first half of the 20th centuries, and it's slowed since. So it can't really be blamed on your gas stove or that selfish thing where you heat your home in winter. But the bigger problem with Gore's claim, surely worth a fact check of the kind the legacy media tries to do, including on us, is that ice has been melting and seas have been rising since the end of the last glaciation that people popularly call the last ice age. So it's clearly natural and it will clearly continue until the next glaciation starts, regardless of how much CO2 is in the air. I mean, check out this famous graph of sea level change over the past 24,000 years, which is still available on Wikipedia for now at least, despite showing, inconveniently, that most sea level rise happened a long time ago and has slowed to a crawl recently. How do you blame that on increasing CO2 in the last 70 years? Well, here's how some people do it. They say, yeah, okay, we see this pattern, but NOAA claims that sea level rise has accelerated recently to 3 millimeters a year, twice the 20th century average. But as Stephen Coonan explained in his book, Unsettled, there were several 20-year intervals in the 20th century when the sea level rose at least that fast, then subsequently slowed down, though CO2 kept rising. So it's just one more natural fluctuation, and Al Gore is all wet for suggesting otherwise. And another thing. Over at Roger Pilkey Jr.'s Substack channel, his father, Roger Pilkey Sr., a highly accomplished atmospheric scientist, writes about how changes in land cover affect the climate. Obviously, things like deforestation and conversion of land to agriculture or urbanization, for instance, in this comparison of Florida land use in 1900 and 1992, have had a local effect, including on precipitation patterns that change local temperature. But, Pilkey Sr. notes, large-scale land use change can actually have climatic effects that reach thousands of miles. So, major land use changes over the last few hundred years have been a big driver of global climate change, which leaves less of it to attribute to CO2. But good luck trying to convince the climate experts who say of that. Okay, we'll try anyway. Because we also dip into the CO2Science.org archive for a study of the impact of land cover changes on sea surface temperatures and sea ice data in eastern Australia. And once again, yes, it turns out to matter. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I still know climate is complicated. <laughs>